Well, here we are with Ron McGill, <laughs> and uh, I wish we had the. Uh, I wish I had my. Uh, I guess my my uh, my jingles all set up because uh, I know you like the Lion King theme song. I also. do. <laughs> yeah, it's one of uh, you know. As a matter of fact, see back right here is the poster from Lion King. I actually worked on that film. Yeah. So, yeah. What was your role on the Lion King? I was one of the people who worked with the animals so that the the artists could draw them so they could get the natural movements and stuff like that. So I hosted all the animators down here from Disney and we worked around the zoo and our zoo animals served as models for that movie. You're kidding. No, I'm not. See the poster right there. So they were, it was part of it was film or not film, but obviously it's animation. But yes, a lot of it was, was based on animal movements from the animals that live here at the zoo. Okay. So I don't know if you know Ron, but my spirit animal is a lion. I'm Simba. That's like my, my kind of like, everyone has a fun name. I think in the future, more of us embrace like our fun DJ name or whatever, you know, like, <laughs> okay. what would you say your spirit animal is? Harpy Eagle. Yes, I've read, I've heard about that. Yes, um, the Harpy Eagle, that's my spirit animal. Explain to me that your fascination with the Harpy Eagle. It is the most powerful bird of prey on earth, lives in one of the most beautiful areas of the world, the tropical forest of tropical America. Um, it's a very proud bird, it flies, I've always wanted to fly myself, uh, I have dreams that I fly, so uh, has no natural enemies other than man, so it lives a pretty... Uh, Incredible life in the rainforest. Okay. How does it uh, differ from other eagles? Well, it's bigger and it's stronger and it's... It's uh, the alpha male of eagles? It's the, it's the alpha. It's the alpha of all eagles. It definitely is. No question yeah. about it. Yeah. I can see some eagle in you, too. <laughs> Why? The big nose? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, 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 I don't know. The gray hair. I guess... What, what makes an eagle? Uh, eagle eye, right? Well, like, eagle great... is just a big bird of prey. It's, it's a large bird of prey. Powerful hound. Big talons. Uh, you know, large. I mean, I'm fairly tall. I'm six foot six. So that makes all me... Right. Really large, but uh, yeah, I guess you know, proud bird, bird that takes pride in what it does and majestic. It, yeah, is it not our uh, national animal? Is a bald eagle is a bald eagle. Bald yeah, eagles, yeah. The harp eagles makes the bald eagle look like a pigeon. All right, I guess the the forefathers didn't know about the harpy. Well, <laughs> no, the harpy eagle is not found in the United States, so you wouldn't want to okay. have a national bird that's not found right. in the country that's the symbol of. So okay, so. Ron, you are uh, you're quite the character, and this is a character podcast. We like to <laughs> shine a light on uh, characters in Miami and and encourage everyone in Miami to to kind of indulge in their character, right? And and really become kind of the uh, the most sophisticated character they can, in, in in order to enjoy their life more and infuse their life with meaning and purpose. So you're there's a lot about you on the internet. Um, but I still Don't love believe it. it all. <laughs> I know, but I, that's why I want to bring it back to like, you know, I, what's your story? Where were you born? Let's just start it out. Like what you like sharing about yourself. You know, I was born in New York City. Uh, first house was a small apartment in a place called Jackson Heights in New York City. My father was a Cuban immigrant. Came over here when he was 17 years old with barely a third grade formal education, but still one of the smartest men I've ever known. Uh, he met my mom in New York, who's the daughter of a Colombian and German immigrant. And... Um, there I was. I have a sister who was born three and a half years later after I was born. And uh, we moved out to a little place in Queens called Cambria Heights. I always loved animals. Always fascinated with animals. I mean, ever since I was a little boy, they had me pictures feeding squirrels, feeding pigeons, always kind of connecting with the animals out there. So that was something that was always from the get-go. Nobody ever questioned that I would do something with animals in my life. I originally wanted to be a veterinarian, but that was something that uh, I had to put on the back burner when I started taking my chemistry classes because chemistry and, and me don't mix. Uh, for some reason, that was just not a subject that I could grasp, even with all the tutors, every type of form of help I tried to get didn't work. So I went into zoology, wildlife conservation, uh, animal science, 
And, uh, you know, we moved down to Florida, Miami, when uh, 1972. It was a great year because I lived in New York in 1969 when it was the greatest year to live in New York because that's when the New York Mets won the World Series, the mm. New York Jets won the Super Bowl, and the New York Knicks won the NBA championship. Yeah, victory all so around. So as a, a nine-year-old boy there, you're thinking, wow, this is the greatest city on the face of the planet. Um, and, you know, I, I did enjoy sports as a kid and watching it, so that was great. And then I moved down here in 1972. And what happened in 1972? Was there some hurricane or something? No, it's the oh. year of the perfect season of the Miami Dolphins. Ah, you're saying only victory time. follows you around, Only huh? time. Only time in NFL history there was a perfect season, and that was the Dolphins. So, you know, now I'm 12 years old, and I'm here, moved down, freshly moved down, and here's this greatest football team ever. So uh, it really worked out well. My dad was a contractor and a carpenter, and he built our house down here. We moved out to four acres and um, got a couple of horses raised horses out there and my dad started a you know a grove with mangoes and avocados and i really was able to get into the outdoor life really understand what it was like to appreciate south florida a lot of the treasures that we have here you know on our property we lived on five acres you know we had owls foxes possums raccoons uh, bald eagles i mean we saw all kinds of things on our property so it was a great introduction into wildlife and that was something that gave me a great foundation yeah i heard uh an avocado broke your nose while you're riding. Uh, on riding a horse. horse. That's true. We were yeah. racing. We used to race through the avocados. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, as the trees were lined up in the grove, each horse would get one lane between trees and run. And there was a low hanging fruit that I didn't see, and that would knock me off. Yeah. And you had your first kiss on your. What was your favorite horse? Or oh, whatever? Tampico. 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 Well, you have done a lot of research. Oh no, you have. There's all right. If anyone's listening to this, oh my gosh. and you're more of a reader. <laughs> There's an amazing Miami New Times article in long form. I, oh. I actually, it takes like about a half hour to read. So you can either li- read that or listen to this but or do both because you won't catch that. And there's so much about Ron that, uh, I mean, you were on, I mean, we're not, we're still in your childhood here. Okay. So, all right. So when did you, uh, when did you really become like an apprentice or, or really start like growing and, and having a mentor? Well, you know, my first, well, my first paying job was throwing the Miami News. And I was 14, 15 years old through the Miami News. And then after that, which was a big payback then because it was $5 an hour, which was a ton of money, you know, 45, 50 years ago, um, picking mangoes, picking mangoes for a place called Mitchell's Mangoes. Uh, and that was just a win-win situation. Not only was it great money, but mango is like my favorite food on the planet. I can live off a of mango. So coming down here, and Florida mangoes are better than any mangoes I've had anywhere else in the world. Florida mangoes are the best mangoes I've ever had. So that was a great job. And then my first animal job that I got paying was working at a place called the Miami Serpentarium. And that was the uh, attraction down here, south, southern Miami-Dade County on US-1, right next to what's now Sunnyland Park. Um, it's no longer there, but it was an incredible attraction with an incredible gentleman. That's a picture of him right there on my desk, or my desk with a cobra. Um, he was considered one of the greatest snake experts in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to work under him and started there as a tour guide. And I became an assistant curator and a curator under his uh, guidance. And he wasn't a big talker, but he just allowing me to shadow him and watch what he did, I learned an awful lot about about reptiles, crocodiles, tortoises, snakes. Um, I learned a lot with that gentleman, and he opened some doors for me. Uh, and then I, you know, I went to the University of Florida and studied animal science because I figured that's I needed that education to get the, the foot in the door. And uh, while at the University of Florida, I did a lot of alligator research. We tagged alligators. We did census studies for alligators. We, you know, 
ran at the University of Florida, so it's the Florida Gators, so that was a good connection there. And um, I learned a lot about field research, going out there and collecting data and doing stuff like that and uh, really enjoying the outdoors, really understanding how to take care of yourself, be careful, you know, learn some of the processes and how to collect data and, and compile it and make it into something that uh, is useful information. Uh, and then in my senior year at the University of Florida, I got offered a job as a zookeeper at not this zoo, because this zoo was not built yet. Mm. Uh, at the predecessor of the zoo called Cranon Park Zoo on Key Biscayne, uh, which was a very small little zoo. In hindsight, it was really, as far as zoos go, not a very good zoo. Small cages, bars, concrete floors, really kind of your stereotypical horrible zoo. Uh, but that's all they knew way back then. And uh, got my foot in the door, and then was part of that whole process of moving down here and being part of the opening of right. Metro. I zoo. heard uh, your mentor, he, uh, at the Serpentarium, he... He believed in uh, snake venom as like a healing. He did, uh, uh, and, I, and I and I I believe he's right. Do I you think. use it? Yourself? I don't use it. I don't use it because it hasn't. And there's nothing been approved really by the FDA, but they do use it for vet, for um, treatment of like arthritis in dogs. It's a veterinary medicine. Um, it has a lot of powers to it, um, you know. And like I said, he he taught me a lot in letting him observe. But if I had a mentor in wildlife, my mentor was, and I tell this story all the time. Kids today, they're incredibly lucky because they've got this just this huge variety of wildlife program you've got the discovery channel animal mm -hmm. planet you know national geographic when i was a kid none of that existed there was one show it was on sunday night at 7 30 it was called mutual of omaha's wild kingdom and on that show there were two hosts the general host was a guy named marlon perkins and his kind of side host was a gentleman named jim fowler and jim was the guy who did all the cool stuff you know while marlon was talking jim was jumping out of helicopters on top of caribou he mm. was uh you know repelling down cliffs and grabbing condors with one hand. I saw him catch a jaguar in the wild with a net. That's all. I mean, he was really my hero. Other than my dad, that guy was my hero. Okay. I idolized him. And um, as luck would have it, I started the job as a zookeeper here. And Jim was very famous at the time. Wild Kingdom was the show. And he was touring the country, um, doing presentations on behalf of Wild Kingdom. And he came to Miami. And when he toured the country, he would go to whatever the local zoo was in whatever city he was in and ask if they had any animals they could bring to whatever venue he was speaking at so that he wouldn't have to be stressing animals by flying them all over the country. Mm. And I said, oh my gosh, please send me. I want to go meet this guy because I've idolized him since I was six years old. And to make a long story short, I met him. He became one of my greatest mentors. He became like an uncle to me. Uh, it was the beginning of a 35 plus year friendship where he taught me how to present animals, how to respect animals, how to, you know, publicly speak about animals. Uh, he passed away a couple of years ago, but, uh, you know, to the day he died, I, I spoke to him on a regular basis. And, um, you know, the first day I'll never forget when he came to visit me down in my home and he came over to our house for dinner and I'm thinking, you know, Jim Fowler's at my dinner table, you know, to, to give you some kind of perspective, that would be like, you know, a high school basketball player having like a LeBron James don't yeah. have dinner there because he was the man. Um, you know, people have heard about, you know, the Crocodile Hunter and Jeff Gordon, but they all came after Jim Fowler. Jim Fowler l laid the foundation for everything that are the wildlife presenters today. Well, Jim Fowler and, of course, Sir David Attenborough. He's, he's the icon of icons. Right. It's like the the spirit of showmanship as well, right? And, and, and play, yeah. the, the spirit of play, always, being a little kid. Yeah, and, and having that sense of wonder. The thing I really always respected about Jim and about, you know, Sir David Attenborough is they didn't sensationalize things. They didn't make things, you know, like today, all you hear about is like when animals attack, you know, the world's deadliest. Everything is teaching you to be afraid of animals. Mm -hmm. I think it's the wrong message. Uh, what Jim taught was Jim taught to respect animals, but always have that sense of wonder about them. Right. And so in the animal kingdom, um, I, I love personally, I love rituals. I love designing rituals like 
uh, I have weekly rituals, monthly rituals, yearly rituals, daily rituals, whatever. Rituals are really powerful to me. Uh, what are some of the most uh, impressive or like astounding rituals you've seen in the animal kingdom in terms of animals doing things? Uh, just like some, an instinct that, that just wows you. I know that's like so. Just a I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, you can see something, you know, I remember seeing something in Antarctica watching killer whales work together. And there was a seal on the top of an iceberg that they couldn't get to that they wanted to eat. And they couldn't get them off the iceberg, so they worked together to form a, a line that they get when swimming went real quickly to create a wave that hit the iceberg and knocked the seal off the iceberg so they could eat it. Wow. They worked together <laughs> doing that. That's pretty incredible to watch. You know, when you watch some of the courtships of some animals, uh, you know, some of the bird courtships, gosh, the birds of paradise, the dances they do, they synchronize their dances to each other. I mean, it's instinctive stuff, but it's an incredible ritual. It's an incredible way that they do those things types of things so i think courtship i think hunting together you, you mm -hmm. watch you know the, the painted dogs of africa the way they hunt it's a they, they 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 start by going like into a huddle and then one dog says go and they all break in different directions and one dog will chase the prey to the next dog that's stationed at a certain place that then chases it to the next dog station it's like a relay race and they seem to have it all pre-planned until finally the prey is just worn out while the dogs are keeping on being fresh mm -hmm. because they're passing one dog off to another so, I mean, those are incredible rituals that you see animals do in a cooperative manner for survival. Do you have a favorite show you still watch to kind of like just, do you pick out on any kind of, any shows? Well, like Wild Kingdom was my show. <laughs> Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom was my show. That went off the air. And now it's all of the Planet Earth series. I think Planet Earth has just done an incredible job. Sir David Attenborough narrates uh, those programs. You know, there's Blue Planet, Planet Earth, Frozen Planet. All of those are just the best of the best. Why? Because they don't sensationalize. They just plant seeds about how incredibly wonderful nature is, how diversified it is, and it makes you just want to learn more. Yeah. So you obviously do, you know, you have a few uh, uh, documentaries out there. Where do your ambitions lie with doing more of that? Or are you kind of done with that? Well, I'm never kind of done with it. You know, my ambitions lie right now, the thing that's most important to me. Listen, I came to work here 42 years ago now. But I say this over and over to her, I sound like a broken record. I didn't come to work at the zoo to work for an attraction. My focus has always been on conservation of animals in the wild. I say this over and over again in the sense that I would never ever support just taking an animal out of the wild to put it on exhibit at the mm -hmm. zoo, just strictly put it on exhibit. Never ever support that. The only time I would ever support taking an animal out of the wild to put it on any kind of exhibit would be to save that individual animal's life or to save the species that it represents. And we have done that with several species, zoos, Save the California condor, the black-footed ferret, the Arabian oryx. These are species that would be extinct today were it not for zoos. Mm. Um, but that's it. I don't, I don't agree with taking an animal out of the wild and putting it on exhibit because, oh, well, we're educating people. We need to, people to see it so we can... No, I don't think that's necessary anymore. I think zoos are insurance policies against a very uncertain future in the wild. Uh, we, we can create banks of genetic material to help preserve a species. But simply to put an animal on exhibit for human entertainment? No, I don't go for that. So um, the thing I'm most proud of is when I started here, we didn't really have a conservation fund. We didn't, you know, we were spending millions of dollars on these exhibits and we weren't allotting a significant amount of money to help protect those animals in the wild where they belong. And I was coming against management and saying, listen, guys, we cannot be spending millions of dollars on a new exhibit and not allocating a certain amount of money to protect those animals in the wild where they naturally belong. And, you know, they'd come back with the, well, you know, the budget cuts and we don't have the money and we got to build the exhibit. If we don't build the exhibit the right way, the people aren't going to come and it's going to be a moot point. I, I disagreed. I said, you know what? I'm going to start my own 
endowment. Mm. I wanted to start what, what you call an endowment because the key thing here is sustainability. You can keep on going out and raising money and every year you got to raise more money. You can raise more money and then you spend it. You got to raise more money. But I started questioning myself what was going to be my legacy? I mean, I've been here over four decades. What was going to be my legacy? Was it going to be just the guy who goes on TV with animals or, you know, talks in the media about animals? I didn't want it to be that. I wanted it to be something to be more uh, lasting and more concrete to really help animals themselves. So I said, I want to try to raise money to create an endowment. An endowment is something where you put that money in there and you can't touch it. You invest that money and whatever money dividends are produced from that that's investment, what that's do. what you get to spend. Right. So you never touch that. So it's always there. So there's always a sense of funding, you see. Now, to have an endowment, you have to raise minimal a million dollars. Without a million dollars, you're just not going to make any money to, to have a dent. So I said, oh, I'm going to start an endowment here. And quite frankly, a lot of my peers laughed at me. And they said, nah, you're not going to be able to raise You're a zookeeper. How do you think you're going to raise money? Who, who are you going to raise? I've never seen a million dollars in my life. How am I going to raise that kind of money? Well, the fortunate thing about being on television is you get to meet influential, affluent people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I told my story, I had people, I will tell you, I've never asked for money. I've never said, God, can you please donate to this? I, I, I just don't feel comfortable doing that. But I tell the story and then people volunteer mm. and give the money. And to make a long story short, I raised the first million dollars um, in about three years, which was a lot. I was expecting it to take 20 years right. to raise a million dollars. And now the endowment stands at almost three million dollars. And it produces, this last year, we gave away over $200,000 in the form of buying radio collars to help do animal research, buying new vehicles to track animals in the wild, uh, you know, camera uh, traps and stuff like that. I've been able to really provide the type of research dollars needed to protect these animals in the wild where they belong. And if I die tomorrow, that lives on. Yeah. It lives on. It continues every year to give away mm. tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars that'll be there forever. And that's what I'm most proud of. I'm not as proud of, you know, just being being on television and being on the radio and doing those public face things uh, is really, it's not, it's, how do I say this without offending anybody? You know, we live in a very shallow society. And what happens is people see somebody on television, they think, oh, they must be important because they're on television. And now it's, I guess, shifting over to social media. Oh, my God, the guy's got, you know, 20,000 followers. Mm -hmm. He must be important, okay? That's hogwash. I can tell you right now, I know people on television that people think, are, oh, my God, they must be the greatest things in life. And they're jerks. Um, they're not really doing anything except reading other people's work. Mm -hmm. um, I see people, you know, with, you know, 100,000 followers and look at their followers. Half of the time I see they buy their followers. I mean, don't judge people by what you see on a television set or you see in social media. Judge them by the work that they've done. What are they really contributing to society? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't mean to offend people. I'm going to offend people when I say it right now. But I mean, I look at the Kardashians and I say, what the hell have they contributed to society? What have they done to make the world a better place? Uh, I look at it almost like the dumbing down of America. Right. Well, know? they entertain a lot of people. Uh, okay. They distract people. It's, uh, I could say it's an escape from other things that they could be doing, right? Um, but at the same time, they have built up a... A power. Now, what if the Kardashians donated to your endowment? Would well, that change your mind? Exactly. It would change I will my reach mind. out to them. <laughs> it would change my mind if I saw them really donating significant amounts of money to make society better. Yes. Not to a fashion show, not to a makeup thing. You know, I just think, and I understand people need an escape and need a release. I just think that 
you know, when you think about the people who are doing incredible work in social work and cancer studies and things that really are important in the quality of our life, I would like to see a lot more attention given to that. Mm -hmm. You know, I find it, I carry a huge chip on my shoulder because here at the zoo, I get credit for things I should never get credit for. You know, people, oh my God, they see you on television, they think you're doing a great job. And I go, listen, I talk about the people that are doing a great job. Because I am on television, I don't have the time to do the great job that I used to do mm -hmm. when I was working behind the scenes. And we kind of got people to understand that it's the people behind the scenes that you don't see that are the single most important people in any institution. Those frontline employees, they're the ones that are working harder and deserve more credit than any of management. Because uh, I'm part of management. I don't work nearly as hard now as I used to work when I was a frontline employee. Yeah, you're less uh, on the front lines. You're... You're a bit of a puppet, you know, in a way. Uh, yeah, you're, you're just out there showing your face. You know, I'm a good storyteller. That's that's my thing. I can tell a story. Uh, but I think anybody can do that. I don't think anybody can do the hard work that these people are doing in front lines. Right. Well, we're always going to need that. And we're going to need people, though, to inspire those people to join the front lines. <laughs> and so that's where, as a storyteller, as a showman, you have your own role. And so one question I ask my life coach students is, what would you do... If you had a billion dollars, like how would that change? What, where would you put that to help the animal kingdom? If a billion dollars, say your endowment was a billion dollars. Right. Now, now we're talking big impact. Where right. do you see the biggest room for growth and, and improvement in the world and the way we treat animals? And, and where would you put that money? A third world countries. Because third world countries um, have some of our most diverse, incredible uh, wildlife and have the least amount of funding to support it and i would do it in educating the people who live with that wildlife because it's very easy for somebody like me to go into a place like you know africa or go to a place like you know you know the, the, the slums of south africa and say oh listen you got to protect this animal because it was here before you listen we have to connect people to wildlife we have to make people understand why wildlife is important to their quality of life um I'd put that money into helping people first, and people would think that's kind of crazy. But I've always said that one of my mantras is, as much as I've dedicated my entire life to working with animals, there's no single animal life that's more important than a human life. And there's going to be people out there that want to cut my head off when I say that, okay? But that's the bottom line. I will tell you that if I'm out in the middle of Africa, and I've dedicated my entire life to protecting animals, trying to bring awareness about conservation, and I've got my wife and kids, and they're hungry. They're starving. And the only way I know them is there's this rhino right in front of me. It's the last rhino on the planet. I know it's the last rhino on the planet. She's pregnant with the future of the entire species. The only way I know right now to feed my kids is to kill that rhino. I'm killing the rhino. My wife and kids aren't going to starve for any animal. And we are very selfish to think or expect anybody else to make that kind of sacrifice for any animal. And that's, in fact, what we ask people to do a lot of times. We go into an area in a forest where they're saying, don't cut down the forest because you're going to ruin this animal's home. I got to cut down the forest because that's the only way I can plant right. plants to go to feed my family. Okay, we've got to present them alternatives. That's where I would use that money. I would use that money to help teach people how we can use alternatives, how we can coexist to do this, but to take care of them first. Because if we don't take care of the people who live alongside of those animals, they're never going to take care of the animals. So I think that would be an answer that might surprise a lot of people. I wouldn't give it right to to animal conservation. I'd give it to education and helping poverty get out of poverty so that they can then care about animals and understand why it's connected. So especially investing in the education and, and work opportunities for people who live near those exactly. areas so that they, they are a bit stronger and, and that, that way they're not 
they're not seeing the low-hanging fruit of taking what Bingo. is at the you know, and, I'll, and I'll give you a classic example of who did something that was just so fantastic. Richard Leakey. Richard Leakey started the Kenya Wildlife Service. And what he did was to get the best rangers and the best guides for Kenya Wildlife Service, you know what he did? He hired the poachers. He took poachers and mm. he hired them. I think I heard about that. Yeah. And enlisted them into being guides and being rangers. Why? Because those poachers knew how to find animals. That was what they had to depend on, okay? They were the best trackers on the planet. I've been to Africa over 50 times. My best tracker friends were ex-poachers. These guys used to kill animals illegally because that's all they knew. But what Richard Leakey did was he turned it around. He says, mm -hmm. how can we use that skill for something better? If I can teach you to be a great guide, there are people that pay tens of thousands of dollars to fly over here to photograph a rhino. You can find that rhino just like you did when you were poaching them. These people get those pictures... Right. You go away and you have another... That's the true market that we can develop further. That's, exact, that's exactly right. And I, I think I saw this on 60 Minutes with the... Have you seen... A, where is it? Not in Kenya. The Elephant uh, Sanctuary. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And they right. did exactly that. The poachers turned into guides. That's right. And now they're using the money from the tourism and they're giving it directly to the schools and building communities and it's exactly your dream. So what I'm saying is a billion dollars, just more of that. The more right? of that. That's exactly <laughs> right. More of that because, you know, I'm really inspired by the younger generation my generation didn't do a really good job of being stewards of this planet i think the younger generation now has been empowered whether it be doing podcasts or it be through social media but there's also you know uh when i was a young kid i didn't hear anything about recycling i just threw garbage whatever uh i drove the biggest baddest hot rod that thing got like negative seven miles to the gallon uh you'd get a dirty look if you drive a car like that today Okay, now you're cool if you drive a Prius, you're driving a nice electric car because you're being environmentally conscious. You want to reduce that carbon footprint. That is a movement that I've seen now in the younger generation that I think gives me great hope um, that things are going to, the pendulum is going to start swinging the other way. Um, I just see our youth becoming empowered and using that power in a positive way, something that, that we didn't do well in my generation. Well, I believe we're at a point in history and in our planet where we need to kind of stop progressing a little bit and and we need to kind of reach a plateau where we stop overgrowing and overpopulating and we need to start focusing our ingenuity and technology on saving the planet now because there's no it's more need that place there's it's no more need place. for a better iphone there's right. no more need for a better car <laughs> i mean look these flying cars and robot cars they we, they've been promised to us and you know what we're realizing the power of the human brain right and, and guess what we need all the technology we can get to save this planet right and so Investing in any kind of education that, that promotes that is, is, is where it's at. And, uh, but I'll say there's a, there's a ticking time clock here. There's urgency here. And so sure. how do we promote urgency? Because as you know, Miami is uh, growing very fast and we're a relatively young city. So the industrialism and, and, the, and the spirit of construction is enormous, as you know. And I, I know you've, you're very aware of this. And so do not think there's a very big urgency here to delineate these conservancy, these these parks and these areas that say this is off limits. This is a future space that we can have tourism for. We can we can monetize this. Right. Like this this area has amazing wildlife, and one day we can have trained guides bringing people through to amazing nature experiences. But we need to be very quick right now to draw those lines. So in your mind, what are some of those lines that you want to draw really fast, or where do you see we need to protect areas near in Miami? Well, number one is the UBD or UDB, Urban Development Boundary. 
urban boundary development. Anyway, that's a line that basically goes to the west side up to the Everglades. And that's something that was agreed upon years ago as part of a covenant that you cannot develop beyond that. Right now, the county commission is considering extending that UDB. Mm-hmm. That would be a, a profound mistake. Um, because what you're doing is you're getting into areas now that are going to affect our water table. They're going to affect our wildlife. They're going to affect the flow of water, the Everglades restoration, all of those things. Um, I have, without getting into politics, I have great hope in our mayor here in Miami-Dade County because she is an environmentalist. Um, she will fight for that. But that, I think, that is the number one priority that we have to set right now is not allow these developers to convince commissioners in whatever way they're doing it to extend that UDB um, because that has got to be a non-negotiable thing. Uh, we have to get to a point, and this is going to sound terrible because I've been at these commission meetings where I beat my head with these guys and say, listen, we can't do this. You cannot continue doing this. Well, you know, we're going to be out of single family resident areas by 2026. So we have to be able to expand. I go, no, you know what? When a hotel is full, it says no vacancy. There's going to have to come a time where we say no vacancy. You got to wait for somebody to die or somebody to sell their house. You don't have to keep building. Where's the law that says we have to keep on building this stuff? Why do we have to keep expanding? There has to come a time we say, no, move to Montana, move to someone else. If it means that it makes the prices of things go off the roof, it makes it's supply and demand. Well, that's what's going to have to happen, right? If you exactly. have to have a choice, there has to be something. Exactly. If we're not going to grow, it has to become more precious, more, more exactly. expensive. Exactly. And guess what? There are... That's the beauty of America the beautiful, America the great, how much space we have. Exactly. So there are areas to build homes. And so, yes, Florida, Miami is going to have to just gradually become more and more expensive. And maybe people might have to move elsewhere. But at the end of the day, we need to conserve this jewel that we have. It's right? just, yeah, exactly. You know, we have to say we, if we don't preserve this, it's going to affect all of us. We are all connected. And, and people don't realize that. They're starting to realize it now. With, you know, the threat of sea level rise and, you know, saltwater intrusion and things like that. When it starts affecting our pocketbooks, all of a sudden people start paying attention. And that's unfortunate. Everything seems to be driven by mon- by money. It's a financial thing. Oh, you know. This whole thing that we've been hearing about climate change, about sea level rise, this is not something new. This has been going on for decades. Scientists have been warning it's going to happen. And the naysayers, ah, it's not going to Shut up. Go away. It's not going to happen. And now it's happening and people are going... Okay, we got to say a little more attention. But God, if we paid attention back then, we'd right. not be nearly in the crisis we're in now. No, yeah, I mean, uh, it takes the awareness. It takes people spreading the the truth. And uh, I think every day on the news, you see, I mean, it's, it's definitely important to vocalize uh, where changes are happening. So I saw something on 60 Minutes where the the actual line of this scares people because the actual line of the wine countries is actually shifting like oh, every year. Too, so, yeah. <laughs> so now in England, they're growing like the French berry. They're right. growing the French wine. I saw that too. Like, the quality of French wine is now in England. Yeah. And that's like shocking people. But that's like a, yeah, wake up call. Like, right. <laughs> we're there. Like, stuff is affecting us now. And so, um, you know, I, I guess how are we going to, I think I'm optimistic, obviously. I, uh, I'm an optimist. I think we are gradually uh, growing our awareness of what's going on. I think politicians have a huge responsibility, right? But I think I place most responsibility on our stars, on our wealthy people, because we have so many. They have they have a lot of, of power to change the world. Yes, and so, do. Um, do you have any any stars that that you really respect that you might be able to ask for? I can ask for you for funding well, for you. No, I mean, I, I, <laughs> you know, I look 
to me, you know, the icon of people like that or people like Warren Buffett, people like Bill Gates. I mean, these are household names, but look what they've done. Rather than give all their money to their children and stuff, they said, this is the commitment we're making. You know, uh, the Gates Foundation. I mean, I know Bill Gates has got some personal issues going on now and stuff, but what he's done with regard to just malaria in Africa, mm -hmm. polio, these types of things, you know, basic things, the difference they've made, what Warren Buffett has done. You look at a man like Warren Buffett, his wealth, he still drives an older car. He lives in his original house. I think he reflects everything that's right about philanthropy in the sense that he's not one of these do what I say, not what I do type people. He leads by example. Um, there are people here in this town that have been so incredibly good to me and to others. You know, when I think about Miami, I think of the iconic people of Miami. I think about the Dan and Trish Bells. I think about the uh, Cecil and Anna Vega Milton. I think about Mike Fernandez. Um, these are all people that have given so much. Their fingerprint is all over this community uh, and what they've given. Uh, I think they, they lead by example. You know, they've inspired me. Uh, all of those people that I just mentioned have been mentors to me. They've been inspirations to me. I've gone to them with questions. They've helped me out with things. They've put their money where their mouth is. Um, they are true icons of this community. I feel privileged to have known them. Um, and, you know, they have given money without being asked to give money. And I think that's something that is, uh, that's important. I think it's very important. Um, you know, there are people that, <laughs> you know, there's another person I just think about too, and he would hate for me to mention his name, but I'm going to mention it anyway. A gentleman named Bruce Clinton and the Clinton Family Fund. If you were to meet Bruce Clinton, he is everything you would think of of just the guy next door. Very simple, just down to earth, uh, such a salt of the earth type of guy. Um, he was able, through very hard work, to build a significant base of wealth. And he has given to everything from the New World Symphony to, to my endowment here, to things that, to make the place better for everybody else. He does not live luxuriously at all. Um, you know, I look at these people and I think we're very lucky in our community to have them here. Um, you know, I learned my all-time lesson from a gentleman and anybody who really researches me will hear about Winifred and Al Samai. Um, after Hurricane Andrew, I want to make this, I'm going to try to keep it as condensed as possible. After Hurricane Andrew, I was doing presentations around town and I was doing a presentation down, uh, I think it was the Coral Gables Rotary Club or something like that. And after my presentation, talking about all the destruction we faced and how I was working to get things better at the zoo, this elderly gentleman came shuffling up to me. He said, you know, I've been following you for a while. You've been watching me in the media and stuff. He goes, I just really... I'm inspired by what you do for animals, and I want to help you out. And he gave me an envelope, sealed envelope. I didn't open it up because I don't want to say, you know, right? It just seemed kind of rude. Oh, what did you give me, you know? And I just put it back and said, thank you. Because there were a lot of people coming up to me after the presentation. I said, and I came back to the zoo, and I'm unloading my stuff. And I don't know if you remember, I had this envelope. And I opened the envelope, and it's a check for $90,000. And i got to be honest with you. I looked at it first, and I'm ashamed to say this. Because he was dressed so simply. It looked like he'd actually had clothes that he bought at Goodwill. Okay, my first impression was, oh, this poor gentleman is probably maybe got a little dementia. You know, he's probably just thinking he's got checks in the book, money in the bank. He just wrote some check for $90,000. <laughs> because even when you looked at the check, it looked like it was written like he was shaking. Like it took him 10 minutes to write it, you know. So well, I'm going to see if it, I'll deposit it. It's going to bounce from here to California, but I'll deposit it anyway. And boom, it went right through. And I went, oh. And I wrote him a letter. I had the address on the check. I said, Mr. Sam, I, I, I don't know what to say. And he, Coming back, he says, you don't have to say anything. 
Just be responsible and keep doing what you do for the animals. And don't tell anybody I gave you that money. I went, okay. So I came here and, you know, of course, all the development people are, who is this guy? Who is it? Can't tell you. Not telling you. Because development, you know, they want to go see if they get more, right? I want to go ask for more. <laughs> so no, not telling you. I gave him my word. And I did that. Money was invested into doing things, helping things out with the animals. And then a year later, almost to the day, I get a call from the receptionist. There's a Mr. Sam out here to see you. Wow. Comes shuffling up here. And he puts a $100,000 check on my desk. He goes, thanks for keeping your part of the bargain. I go, Mr. Sam, I go, first of all, you got to call me Albert. Call me Al. I go, Mr. Sam, Al, I don't know what, to, you know. I said, I, I, can I can I meet with you and your, I don't want to. He says, okay, you can come to the house. We'll talk, you know. I went to visit him in his house. One of the most humble little homes in Coral Gables. When I saw the Coral Gables address, I'm expecting to go down to like Cocoa Plum, you know, yeah. or this massive mansion or something. He lived on the fringe of right off of Bird Road and Red Road. Simple little house built in the 50s. I drive up in his part in his driveway. His car is like an old Datsun B210. It's like this old, old car. He's sitting on his porch in one of those old like vinyl chairs that you bring to the beach. And I'm thinking, this guy has given me $190,000 in two years. And he lives with a car that maybe is worth 1500 bucks and... Well, it has sentimental value to him. Well, and if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, and here's not, the deal: what, when you really reach a level of wisdom, you realize what you really want to do is start growing your impact on the world in a positive way, and that doesn't involve you driving a Range Rover. And that's why Albert and Winifred Samai, I have their that's their picture right there behind my desk. That elderly couple right there, um, they are my role models of role models, because I spoke to him. I went to his home. His home was beautiful, but it was a it was a time warp. It was like the 1950s when you walked in there. But everything was immaculate. Everything was in perfect condition. His wife, Winifred, came out. Most beautiful, sparkling blue eyes with an Irish accent. She was from Ireland. It's just so nice to have you here, Ron. And make a long story short, I would go there every Wednesday and have lunch with him and talk. There's a book called Tuesdays with Maury. Yes. Well, a lot I had, of kids have read that. That's cool. Yeah. I had my Wednesdays with Al. And he'd tell me all the stories of growing up and, and why he did what he did and how he amassed his wealth and why he never had it himself. He wore an old Timex watch that looked like you could get out of a gumball machine, okay? And even his wife would say, Albert, why didn't you get a new watch? And he would go, this one works perfectly fine. That was his attitude. He gave me, before he passed away, over half a million dollars. And then when he passed away, I got called to his office, to his attorney's office with his wife, his widow, and to, for the reading of the will. He left his widow a certain amount of money, which wasn't very much in perspective. Well, it was because it was it was a six-figure amount, but he left for his wife in the house. He goes, and I leave the rest of my estate to Zoo Miami under the direction of Ron McGill. Wow. That he has to be able to say how every penny is spent. And if Ron McGill leaves the zoo, that money goes with him to any animal, uh, you know, philanthropic group that he designates. I have no idea how much it was. It was almost $4 million. And the amphitheater here at the zoo is named after. It's called the Samai Family Amphitheater that I named. I told him um, what happened was he, he was getting progressively you know, more ill. I became deaf. He lost his sight. But he was the wisest man I've ever spoken to. He and his wife both taught me more about what being philanthropic, altruistic certainly is and 
one of the things, you know, he had always asked me, and his wife did the same thing, and I did for both of them. They said, Ron, all I ask of you, and he never asked me of anything. He says, I don't want to die in a hospital. His last wish was, I want to die in my house. So I never let them take mm-hmm. him to the hospital. I talked to his doctor. His doctor was, the hospital is going to do nothing extra for him. And get him in hospice care and have him in the house. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I held his hand as he took his last breath. I'd never seen anybody die. Oh, wow. I'd never seen anybody die before. It was a very transformational moment for me. Because first of all, it was incredibly peaceful. And, you know, the last day or so, he was not there at all. He was just out. But right before he went into that kind of comatose state, he smiled at me. He goes, there's no pain. And, you know, he made me realize that don't be afraid to die. It's not something to be afraid of. He lived a good life. He lived into his 90s. But he smiled. He goes, there's no pain. And then the last thing he said, he says, just take care of Winnie, his wife. He just loved his wife. That was a love story like you can never believe. And then I did, you know, for the next five years. And then she went into the same thing, hospice care. I held her hand. She took her last breath. Um, I learned more from those two people in a few short years than I learned in all my school and university and everything else about life, about what's important in life. Um, so you talk about philanthropy. They they did incredible things. Um, people that most people don't know them, but I, till I take my last breath, I'll never forget Albert and Winifred Samway, two people who were just two of the most incredible people I've ever met. Yeah. Now, I noticed your respect even for the animals. You even uh, you started the tradition of announcing their deaths, right? Instead yes. of just their births. Right. And honoring the circle of life. Um, so now, you know, obviously there's philanthropy. There's people who have a lot of power and realizing they don't need to keep chasing after the next 0.01% improvement in their car or phone. Like, no, they can become satisfied and, 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 and appreciate their sentimental but like belongings and realize progress is elsewhere. Progress is improving the world. Progress is in inspiring. And and so what I ask you now is what about the average Joe? What about what about the rest of us in Miami who, you know, work in ninety five, maybe we work even in the service industry. What can we do to care more for the environment? You know, I, I... I'm the average Joe. I got to tell you. I mean, I'm not now only because I guess I have a lot of public exposure. Being a public figure, I guess, eliminates that public, that average Joe. But I really, I'm just, in my heart, I'm just a zookeeper. Um, I think what you need to do is you need to believe that, first of all, you can make a difference. Um, And little simple things, you know. Try to reduce using recyclable, you know, uh, reusable plastics, you know. Try not to use those plastic straws all the time. Don't let go of balloons to celebrate things into the environment. They hurt the environment, you know. Um, and we've seen changes to that. You know, people don't throw rice at weddings anymore because, you know, rice can hurt birds that they try to eat the uncooked rice, right? Um, so we throw bird seed now. We just need to change our habits little by little. You know, don't let the water continue to run while you're brushing your teeth. Um, you know, don't... Uh, you know, let the, the car run uh, while you go inside the store or something like that. Try to convert over to electric uh, type of things. Try to mm. reduce our use of fossil fuels. You know, if everybody did a little bit of that, and it sounds so cliche-ish, but if everybody did a little bit of that, it amounts to a tremendous amount. It really does. Um, and, and those little changes in just your behavior, you know, when you purchase things, I got to tell you something. I think that's the greatest difference people can make is really being cognizant of what they're buying. Whether it be, you know, not buying things that have palm oil in them, because palm oil is causing the destruction of forests at an exponential rate throughout Asia. Um, 
And we don't realize how many things have palm oil, but yet they make alternatives without palm oil. The consumer can change that. There's another saying that I am a strong believer in, that, and that is that when the people lead, the leaders will follow. If we get enough people on that front line doing the right thing, the leaders will, will, will back them up because they need those frontline people. They need their votes. They need their support. We just need to be able to kind of get together to do that. That's one of the big advantages of social media. You know, it gives people now the power to get people together and try to get get them heard, whereas before it wasn't that easy to be heard. Now, just click on the Internet, you can be heard. Right. No, I mean, uh, part of it's also taking ownership even of your environment, of your Absolutely. area, of your neighborhood, saying... Like not 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 letting not let, not being okay that there's a bunch of litter all over your your front your 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 street right in front of right. you like just maybe you say up. no that's not okay and you know what if you if you say one day you get some friends together and and you plug and pick it up suddenly people are less likely to drop litter because it looks like a cared for area that's right so it starts in our own environments and so um, is there any way say we were say say you know us Miami folk we wanted to appreciate more. Uh, you know Miami wildlife in terms of like what's tropical, what's here, what's in our neighborhood. Are there any shows or resources or like how can we more appreciate the the little wildlife that's in our neighborhoods? You know, I think just visit the parks. You know, we have a great system of parks here. Um, you don't have to go deep deep into the Everglades or Big Cypress to see some incredible. What's wildlife. an underrated park? That, uh, I'll tell you an underrated place. It's not necessarily Miami. It's kind of more towards Palm Beach, but especially this time of year. Go to a place called Wakota Hatchie. It's a reclaimed water and sewer plant. The Palm Beach water and sewer is reclaimed and made into a wetland. And right now there's hordes of wood storks nesting there. You can see bobcats there. You can see alligators. Tons of birds nesting. It is a prime example of how when you dedicate yourself to doing something, you can make a huge difference. This is a reclaimed water and sewer treatment plant that is better than almost any national park boardwalk you'll ever walk through as far as the wildlife you'll be able to see. I think it's a perfect place, you know, or just walking along, you know, you can go down Tamiami Trail, go out on Loop Road and walk along Loop Road. And, you know, the last time I was out there, I saw otters crossing the road, alligators, you know, I, it's just, we have a plethora of wildlife here, not to mention all the exotic stuff that is causing problems from iguanas to tegus to Nile monitor lizards to all kinds of parrots and things like that. But, but you know, Miami is a melting pot of all kinds of wildlife. I know you were uh, you worked on the set of Miami Vice, right? You were, I did. I was an animal it, handler for that so show. Was it mostly the was it an alligator you were handling, or well, Elvis the alligator was the star of that show, but there were really like about five or six different Elvises, depending on the shot. When we we're doing a shot inside the boat, it was a smaller Elvis. On the outside of the boat, it was a bigger Elvis. But I also handled any kind of animal in the show. If there was a parrot, in a, you know, in a scene, if there was a fish tank in an office for the psychologist or something, I had to set anything that had an animal or life into it. You know, I had I was using cobras once on an island in the Keys. From a, the drug dealer had some cobras, so they wanted some cobras. You know, so I did a lot of that stuff back then. That's not stuff I would do now. I um, mean, I've learned a lot about that business and stuff. But you know, back then I was in my twenties, and um, it was incredible pay. I mean, I bought my first townhouse with the money I made from Miami Vice, and that says a lot because I was making more money working on Miami Vice maybe once a week than I was working full time at the zoo. <laughs> and you got to hand out uh, Miami Vice business cards to girls, I, I girls at have, the bars, huh? I, well, <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I've never had an alcoholic drink in my life. Never, oh, really? I've never That's tasted, a character I've trait. Never, I've never had there a cup of coffee in my life either. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, so I'm a little boring that way. But my wife makes up for that. My wife loves her wine, loves her coffee. But, yeah, I was never a guy who went to the bars. 
Okay. But you enjoyed, I heard, yeah, you enjoyed handing out your, your business card. I did. Card. I, they did give me a Miami Vice business, business card, and I did, I did hand that out. Back in your 20s, you know, that, whatever, whatever advantage you could get, you used. Right. So I'm a big believer as well in, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of urgency to save our planet, and, and us adults need to take action, but a lot of times that things start with the youth, right? And even, you know, youth, what's amazing about children is they can actually open the hearts of their parents as well. Oh. And, and their parents can grow in their in their respect I, and awareness. I'm a big believer in that. Listen, I, I'm a dad myself. There is nothing more important to me than my kids. If it becomes important to my kids, it becomes important to me. Right. Um, and that you know, there's that old saying that says you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but you can teach the puppies, and the puppies will teach the old dogs. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, and I think that's 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 the approach we need to have. We need to go with with our youth. We need to get our youth inspired so they in fact can change the mentality of some of the adults. So how many field trips are you running here to Zoo Miami? How, how, what percentage of schools are actually exposing the children to these positive wildlife experiences? Prior to COVID, it was a lot. Now with COVID, it's been drastically reduced. I'm hoping that builds up again as these you know restrictions start to, to ease a bit. But uh, prior to COVID, we had a lot of field trips out here. A lot of field trips to the zoo. Yeah. No, I think that's great. I think I think we should... I think there should even be a fund that 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 promotes that more of that, making and, sure that kids who, from under underdeveloped or areas that are uh, inner city, whatever, that they get exposed to these these opening their heart to love of animals. We do that, and we have some great foundations. You know, the Carnival uh, Foundation um, so provides incredible funding for schools and different programs through Carnival, Carnival? Foundation. Okay. Carnival, yeah, and the other one is the Bachelor Foundation. The Bachelor Foundation gives us significant money to provide scholarships for kids to come to the zoo, to attend zoo camp and things like that. So there are some really good organizations in South Florida that do provide us funding so that we can provide these experiences for kids. Okay. I had like a more uh, scientific question. I think this is one I initially, I was reading a lot about instinct, animal instinct. Mm -hmm. And so it fascinates me how intelligent, even like a, uh, like I read an article about how a slime mold, like literally like one of the most simplest bacterias ever can actually learn from its experience going through like a, a maze of something and, and because it develops a preference for something. And so I, it's just kind of like maybe a little beyond, but like where does animal instinct really housed in the brain? Like, like, <coughs> do you like can you share us a bit about that? You know, I really, I really couldn't tell you that. Yeah. I really couldn't tell you. I just think, you know, there are animals that certainly have instincts for survival that enable them to survive. Um, but I am not, intelligent enough to tell you where that comes from in the brain i might have to talk to a neuroscientist there you go there you go (laughs) but no in terms of uh, appreciation of animals wow it it never ends i mean uh how many species are there millions right i mean Uh, uh, millions and millions that we don't even know about yet okay and so one thing that i want to do personally i want to do a a big africa trip next year Um, it'll change your life and uh so where where should i start or where where are some places i can't miss for uh, you know observing wildlife well (laughs) You know, it's hard to say that there's there's East Africa and there's Southern Africa. Uh, they both have some common uh, attractions, and they have some that are just unique to them themselves. East Africa, of course, is the big migration between Tanzania and, and, and Kenya, the Serengeti and the Maasai Mara. Um, it's probably the greatest wildlife spectacle on Earth. Um, but it's also, in my opinion, now it's become almost a bit over-tourist. There's just too many people going out there and seeing You go out there, you see a pride of lions, mm-hmm. and there's 10 vans around it. I don't know if that's the experience I want to have. Southern Africa now, South Africa is probably infrastructure-wise one of the most developed countries in Africa. So God forbid you had a problem, you got sick, you had to go to the hospital, there's good facilities there. Um, 
And it also has other options, like you know, go to wine country, incredible restaurants. You go out to the bay. The wine country to, of Africa. Yeah. South Africa has some of the oh, most, South Africa, yeah. most beautiful wine country in the world, and some of the most fantastic wines. I only know because my wife is a wine connoisseur, and she loves going out there, going to you know the wine country of South Africa, and to the bay and the whales and the sharks. You go shark diving out there; it's unbelievable. South Africa is a world in one country; it really is. Um, and then you can go right to Botswana, which to me is my favorite part. Having been to Africa over 50 times myself, um, Botswana, the Okavango Delta, is my single favorite place in the world to see wildlife. Um, again, you, you're never going to be disappointed anywhere you go into Southern Africa or Eastern Africa. But if you had to pick one place, Botswana, Botswana. the Okavango, Okavango Delta, is the most amazing animal experience for me on Earth. Okay, so... I'm a lion. I love lions. What's uh? Where do I see the best lions in the world, or the biggest? The Okavango Delta, Botswana. Right They're okay. the lions that hunt in the water. Those are the NFL football players okay. of lions. The biggest lions I've ever seen in my life. Wow, I can't wait. I've never seen one face to face, but um, I know. Uh, I, I know you. You don't want this to be your legacy. I think we made that clear. Uh, your your legacy is is much more about conservationism and and uh, you know promoting uh, respect for the environment. But I did, I did my, even so much, so Fran, so one of my mentors or one of my older people that I truly respect, my next door neighbor, Fran, uh, when I mentioned that I was going to be interviewing you, she said, oh yeah, he does the sex with animals. Oh <laughs> gosh. Yeah. So, but I know you, we're not going to end on this, but no, no, no. so, so you would actually be making the noises. So yeah. what do lions make for a noise when they have sex? <laughs> It depends. Um, you know, <laughs> it's usually a very high, it's a growl, it's a snarl, but Listen, I, I, you know, I came up with that program because at the end of the day, I thought if I could connect people to animals, even in our most intimate moments, you know, there's that old saying that says, in the end, we protect what we love. We love what we understand and we understand what we're taught. And if I could show people how very similar to us animals are, even in our most intimate moments, they'd have a greater appreciation. And I think the talk was very successful in doing that. I've since not done that talk for a few years. <laughs> I kind of took it off. Uh, but it was very... Well received. It's the it's the most attended presentation ever done here at the zoo. It's sold out every year I did it, um, and it taught a lesson. I think it taught people that yeah, animals and, and we're very similar, you know. Uh, and and that's my goal, just to get people to care, and and I think it worked in doing that. So I don't ever regret doing it. I just didn't want to burn out doing it. Right. You don't want to go in your grave making I'm, moaning sounds. Exactly. You know? <laughs> Thank you. That was it. So let's talk more about poop. Uh, I know you. <laughs> No, no, Sabo del Gigante. I actually haven't. Are they available on YouTube? Like, can, is there a way to watch these these ones? Sabo del Gigante. Because this sure. long running TV show that you I, stopped sure. doing. Yeah, I did it for twenty seven years. Find a way to see it. But yeah. I know you were throwing poop at one point. Yeah, I did. I'm sorry poop. to degrade you after all the great that's, talk that's we okay. had. You know what? I don't think anything is degrading in that sense. I think it's just a matter of no, yeah, it's, it's your it's your character. People you know? pay attention. You know, I I don't think anyone is ever above should ever be above doing anything like. Holding poop. Or well, I'm happy about, to throw some poop. Uh, you know, it's just one of those things that, again, you're educating, you're inspiring. Whatever it takes, I'm willing to do. Well, you know, comedy to me is like one of the highest art forms because truly it is it is kind of selfless. It is it is embarrassing of oneself. It is it's hard to be very arrogant and egotistical and be comical because half of comedy is having the audience feel a bit superior to you. Well. And I think that was one of the greatest lessons. The host of that show, Sábado Gigante, was a man named Don Francisco, the single probably greatest television host in all of Spanish television. He was like the Johnny Carson, David Letterman of Spanish television. And I did that show for 27 years. And 
he sat me in his because at the very beginning I, I sat in his dressing room and I said you know I don't think I want to do this because it's kind of goofy there's a lot of silly stuff that goes on and he sat me down one of the greatest pieces of advice he told me he says listen Ron life is too short for yourself to take yourself too seriously learn to laugh at yourself he goes look at me I literally make a clown of myself every time I go out there he does he wears crazy hats and he acts like a goofball and stuff like that he goes that's not what's important it's important you're bringing a smile to people's faces you're making people forget their problems for a little while maybe be fascinated about something that you care very much about and this show is going to give you a platform to connect with people that you would not normally have a platform to connect to and i didn't have any idea how right he was until years later when people all over the world come up to me and say oh my god you're ron mcgill from Sabo gigante even i'll be it happened to me in africa it happened to me in Africa. It happened to me in the rainforest of right, Panama. The, the Indians. They yeah, were, they came I'm up. Uh, I'm McGill from South and I go, are you kidding me? I couldn't believe it. So that that impact, that power that that show had was so important in developing my career. That man was so important in developing in, in the opportunities he gave me. Um, you know, I, I can't believe how lucky I was that he chose me. You know, and he chose me because my Spanish sucked. He liked to make fun of it, and 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 we got along. I just understood that, you know, he was presenting me with huge opportunities to reach tremendous numbers of people, uh, and I'll be eternally grateful to him for that. Yeah, no, a stage is a stage. Uh, yeah. It's an opportunity to make. But an that stage, that stage was a pinnacle. That was way up there. Like, what did it look like? Did he have any? Oh, it was a huge set. Oh, it was a huge. I mean, it was Univision's big set. A whole studio was dedicated to it. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's bigger than any set I've ever seen on any television show. Uh, and I've done them all. I've done Good Morning America, Today Show, all those shows. This made dwarfed those sets. Sabado Gigante was, in fact, Gigante. It was a huge production. And it, was it filmed only on Saturdays or what? No, 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 no. We filmed it all during the week, and then it and then it showed on, on Saturdays. Saturday. Yeah. And we we did a lot of the shows were done what we call live to tape, you know. So in other words, we're, we're pretending like it's live, but it's not live. Most all the shows you saw there. Every now and then we would do one live on a Saturday night, but most of them were taped ahead of time. Okay. All right, so a couple last questions. I'll put you on the spot. I know there's so much about you out there. Is there anything that people don't know about you that's like kind of funny or like, yeah? Is there anything that you think you haven't shared yet? Because you've shared so much. But um, you know, I think one of the things people don't know about me is I'm really a pretty quiet person. I'm not necessarily the most social person in the world. I'm married. I'm lucky that I'm married to a goddess of a woman who really compensates for my lack of social outwardness so to speak like when i'm asked to go to a lot of these galas and these parties and these fundraisers and things thank god i have my wife on my arm because she is just the most wonderful conversationalist she just is the most lovable person not to mention she's dropped it gorgeous but when i when i'm with her and i'm happily married to her now 33 years um people will ask her oh my god he's like is he like this at home after i do a presentation she goes no i go home i lay down on the couch i put on Netflix or take out a good book or something and I just like quiet I really like quiet um, you know heaven for me is to be at a water hole in Africa with my camera with nothing else and with my wife but with nobody else around mm. just being there no television no phone no nothing no no connectivity at all I I worship those moments when I'm able to travel to these remote places in the world study wildlife because there's a wonderful isolation there and people would think that, oh, I'm the most gregarious guy in the world. I wish I was more gregarious than I am, but I'm really not the, uh, put it this way. My wife says, when we're at work party, she goes, you're such a pill. She'll tell me that. You're I don't such know. a pill. Such a pill. She goes, you're such a pill. 
why don't you just get happier? I go, honey, I'm just kind of tired. You can talk. You can do it. You yeah. Well, you know, you conserve your energy for when it's important. And, well, I don't know. You, you know. My wife I mean, will tell me that it's important at parties to be happy, Ron. <laughs> um, and I'm happy. It's not that I'm not happy. I'm just kind of quiet. Yeah. I'm the kind of guy I sit down in a corner and just observe. I like watching people. Uh, I'm just not much into well, it's part of being a zookeeper. You got to be very observant, you know. Well, and that's another thing. You know, I got this position today because when I started over 40 years ago, most people worked with animals because they don't want to work with people. <laughs> At the time, I enjoyed telling stories and sharing them with people. So that opened a lot of doors for me. Uh, whereas most people, they see a camera, they see an interview. No, I don't want to talk So as long as it's about animals, you're, yeah, yeah, you're the I, life of the party. I guess so. <laughs> what about that? us humans? We're all animals. Yeah. Maybe see more of a spirit animals I, in people, you know? I, I do. I, I, I need to be more open-minded with that kind see of stuff. See the animal in, in us, Ron. I, I, need to be, I need to be better. I do. I do need to be better about that. But that's something that a lot of people might not think about me. I'm not, I'm not the most socially nice person. Not that I'm not nice. I'm just quiet. Yeah, no. What, what A cool thing would be for you at party would play the game of like, Maybe people would ask you, hey, Ron, what kind of animal do you think I am? And then... <laughs> <laughs> I you, guess. What kind of music do you listen to? Um, you know, I'm pretty diversified in my music. Uh, I, I, I love... Those that are old enough. I mean, I love old, like, mellow pop music. Like, you know, um, I was a big Chicago guy. I was a big Earth, Wind & Fire guy. A big, um, you know, The Best of Bread was, like, one of my favorite albums in the planet. Uh, people are kind of throwing up right now listening to this going oh god that's so cheesy but uh, but i really like that i like good country music too you know uh um there's some of the country music's got some of the best lyrics the great songs um uh, luke combs right now has got you know songs that he's written i listen to i go oh my god this guy really writes really great songs and then i like good latin music too good salsa mm. stuff like that yeah you're cuban yeah yeah so i mean i'm very diversified what i don't like i'm not a i'm not a like hard hard rock you know punk rock uh i'm not a big rapping rapper are you gonna be at ultra music festival uh no (laughs) that's quite the animal show yeah no no i'm not gonna i'm not not a big big dance music kind of guy either no all right so what's your guilty pleasure for food like what's your food easy ice cream ice cream me too man i i have a hard time not ending some of my nights with ice cream oh i end every night with ice cream. practically four four nights causing this extra 10 i'm actually with you i and actually what's what's worse is they made these brands ice cream now that are like they look healthy or they stay there healthy like enlightened halo top yeah yeah. i'm addicted to halo top man (laughs) i'm a bluebell guy i'm a bluebell guy (laughs) malicious and chocolate chip and, and and Oreos, uh, cookies and cream. Okay. Those three flavors, they kill me. And I'll, I'll sit there and I'll just keep eating them. I don't know how I do it, but I do all it. Right. Well, you look good. You're uh, <laughs> you're not going anywhere. All right. So, all right. Well, wow. This was fun, hopefully for you. It was fun. Oh, it was great. Yeah, um, I appreciate it. Who is someone in Miami, like a fun character? Because you are one of the top tier characters in Miami. I don't know like <laughs> if we can match it. But is there any other character that comes to mind in terms of like being very uh, a character? Yeah. Billy Corbin. Billy Corbin? Billy Corbin. Find Billy Corbin. That guy will talk you up a storm, and he's a character and a half. Okay. And what is he? Did you mention him? He's a filmmaker. A filmmaker. He's a filmmaker. Billy Corbin's a filmmaker. He did the show, the uh, Cocaine Cowboys movie. Cocaine Cowboys. He also did the movie The You, about all the stuff that went on behind the scenes with all the money and stuff like Ah. that. He, You can see on Netflix, he's got now uh, behind Cocaine Cowboys. He's a character, fantastic conversationalist. And he will never bore you. I promise. Awesome. Well, you did not bore me, Ron. I appreciate Thank you so it, man. much for uh, letting me come here. And uh, yeah, I mean, like, I'm just gonna show everyone around. To <laughs> here we got the Lion King. Oh my God, there's so much art to look at. I bet you could just like sit here and daydream and just looking at your walls. That's for, for 40 hours. years of collecting stuff that my wife won't let me bring home. <laughs>